Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. This episode is brought to you by my weekly email newsletter, Dear Luke. I write this newsletter for two reasons. The first is that a newsletter is generally considered to be a useful tool in building an authorial career. And since it's my intention to have an authorial career, I'm trying to get the newsletter dialed in. I want to play the game, and I want to play it well. Which leads to the second reason, trying to find content that makes sense as an email newsletter. I struggled for a while to find the right venue to place more intimate forms of writing, in which I discuss the challenges that I'm currently facing and what I find helpful in addressing them. And I've come to think that this is the right sort of thing to send directly to somebody's inbox. I've really enjoyed doing it so far, and I hope you can find some resonance in what I write there. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do so on my website, codycommerce.com newsletter, and uh, I'd really appreciate it, especially if you enjoy Cognitive Revolution or any of my other work. It's actually probably the biggest thing you can do right now to support me, and so it would mean a lot. You can also subscribe to Cognitive Revolution on whichever platform you'd be listening through, or leave a review on iTunes, or follow me on Twitter, at Cody Commerce. All of those also help a lot. So my guest this week is Brad Love, and I've heard about Brad and his work for a long time, just sort of whispers of how interesting he is and the work he does uh, throughout you know, my different experiences in cognitive science and psychology, and, and lots of people speak very highly of him, and uh, a lot of his papers have sort of come across my path as especially interesting pieces of work, and so I was keen to talk to him for the show here. He is a professor of cognitive and decision sciences in experimental psychology at University College London. He is also a fellow at the Alan Turing Institute for Data Science and AI, and also the European Lab for Learning and Intelligent Systems. And uh, so his lab, uh, it, its research sort of centers around human learning and decision making, uh, integrating behavioral, computational, and neuroscience perspectives. So uh, we had a really wide-ranging conversation for which we talk about sort of the differences between the English versus American educational systems and Brad's methods for learning about new topics, exploring new ideas, and uh, executing projects in a, a, a wide range of different areas. And uh, so I think you'll enjoy the conversation we had. Apologies for a little bit of degraded audio quality throughout, um, but that will be fixed in future weeks. Anyway, uh, that's enough of me. Here is Brad Love. You did your undergrad in Brown, right? Yeah, yeah, that actually was surprisingly instrumental in helping me uh, get to where I am now um, because uh, Brown, it's funny, at the time, I only had like two choices. It was uh, Brown or MIT, and I guess I really went for the marketing of Brown as like the oddball Ivy League school. But what was really good about it for me was that the curriculum was wide open, so you could pretty much take whatever course you want and whatever subject you want and skip over prerequisites. And I mean, they gave you a lot of rope to hang yourself with, but um, given my interest didn't really fall into any particular academic discipline, it was back then really like crossing from like mathematics, computer science and cognitive science, which was really cognitive psychology for what I was interested in. Um, it was really the ideal uh, place for me. Yeah, and so what, um... What what was about the sort of oddball thing that you felt uh, that you were you were too odd for MIT and you had to be encouraged in your oddness at Brown? <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess everyone's just looking for a place where they think they'll you know fit in and flourish. And I mean, who knows if it was the right decision or not? Like you know, maybe I would have been uh, better off going to MIT. And I, I don't know if Brown's changed, but um, at the time, it seemed like a lot of people were internally motivated by what interests them. And uh, as opposed to like, uh, you know, some external reward and uh, that, that appealed to me and it made it, you know, easy to make friends and you know, exchange ideas with people. I also think that, um, again, I don't know if it's changed, but it felt like a little bit more undergraduate oriented than 
most major research institutions. So, I mean, I got really lucky because um, when I was starting out, um, so was uh, Stephen Sloman, who was an assistant uh, professor then, and he had nobody in his lab. So, you know, I got to be like a, a virtual graduate student as an undergraduate and just other amazing experiences. I didn't even appreciate how amazing they were at the time, like Leslie Pat Kubling, who's now at MIT, um, was I was able to basically do like an independent study with her in computer science on like machine learning AI topics. And I mean, I really enjoyed it at the time, but I had just no idea how unusual that was to get, you know, this much attention from someone so prominent in the field. Yeah. So when you when you entered Brown, so your your sort of your sort of research interests sort of span cognitive science, neuroscience, and AI. Were those all categories that you sort of generally understood and appreciated and knew you wanted to work within when you came to undergraduate? Or when did you when did you start to identify those as what you were interested in? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think what's nice about this the system in the US for undergraduates is you don't actually have to know exactly what you're doing. Um, I mean, compared to like the British system where you, you pretty much have to. Um, uh, so no, not exactly. I mean, I was always interested, you know, in these these issues and, you know, just kind of wondering, like, you know, probably like how any child or teenager does, like, oh, how do we construct reality? How does it work? And, and, and sorry to gain an appreciation that these aren't just like philosophical questions, but they could also be uh, studied scientifically. But, you know, at the time I was interested in like a few possible strands um, for my education. Um, I think I always knew I wanted to do research, but sort of like uh, other kinds of systems that where there's a lot of little parts that self-organize, you know, almost like neurons interest me. So even like some aspects of economics interest me. But um, my first uh, semester at Brown, I took a introduction to cognitive science course uh, that was a broad survey of the literature. And um, I knew instantly like that was what I wanted uh, to do which of course is so broad, it's not really like, that's what I want to do is this incredibly broad interdisciplinary, you know, um, pursuit that involves five fields. So it didn't really narrow it down that much, but I knew that's the area. Who taught that course? Um, yeah, good, good question. I'm trying to, trying to remember because it was like largely team top. I think Heinrich Bulthoff, who is, um, I think he's like retired now, but he moved to Max Planck. Uh, he's like vision scientist. I think he was one of the organizers uh, but like basically like most of the staff, um, academic staff, the, the professors um, gave some lectures on it. So yeah, it was a pretty broad, broad exposure. But I mean, they did a good job actually keeping it organized, which a lot of sort of these like a la carte type intro um, courses don't pull off. Right. Um, I, so I also want to, before we get too far away from it, I want to talk a little bit about the um, British system versus the American system, since you and I both have uh, a little bit of exposure to each of them. Um, and so to give my sort of general interpretation of, of what the difference is, is that so you have in the British system, specialization comes much more uh, early, right? So when you start your undergraduate, it is a three-year course, and you're essentially only doing major courses, as opposed to in the US, you have uh, more typically a four-year course, the first two years are for dicking around, and the second two years are for specializing in whatever you're actually going to major in uh, and, and sort of doing that. And then um, uh, you also have master's and PhD, which uh, are structured a little bit different, both of them. But I think the sort of computational principle uh, structuring both the systems is exploration versus exploitation, right? So in the U.S., you get a lot more opportunity for exploration before you hunker down and exploit exactly what you think you are going to do. Uh, and so I'm wondering, yeah, as uh, you know, someone who's uh, experienced and observed both of them, what do you think the, the better system is? And when do you think the optimal time to sort of transition from exploration of interest to exploitation of getting really good at them, gaining professional expertise in them? Uh, what do you think that sort of right uh, boundary threshold is? Yeah, no, I, I, I like largely agree with your, uh, characterization. I mean, and of course, like um, that point of exploiting, like when you should do that crossover is going to be different for different people. And 
depending on what their career goals are. So like, you know, I don't think I've ever really started fully exploiting uh, yet myself and my continuing education. But I, yeah, so I, I agree with your characterization, uh, but I think there's uh, another element to it that um, is that uh, like degree programs and majors, I, I become outdated. Like, so I think, um, I mean, I hope this isn't upset people, but like, I mean, I think the undergraduate psychology degree is like woefully out of date. It doesn't even reflect what goes on in current research um, in psychology or neuroscience and doesn't do the best job uh, to prepare people for research or other careers. I mean, it's a fascinating subject. It's a valuable major. People do pick up on skills, but I think it could be a lot better. But I think there's just like an institutional inertia around um, degrees, you know, degrees that have been, you know, being offered for decades and especially degrees like psychology that are often tied to some kind of accreditation uh, for people with more clinical interests. Um, I think these programs calcify and it's probably just not psychology. This could probably be said of um, other fields too. I mean, I actually um, like aborted in the last semester of like a mathematics computer science degree because I didn't want to do a software engineering course that I thought wasn't really computer science, but was just like like a Microsoft Buter course at the time. But um, anyway, I think um, institutions kind of move slowly and by giving students more freedom to choose their courses, uh, what they want to study, I think you could get better outcomes. Of course, it would require you know more advising support because students could really make more mistakes too in what they choose. But um, Wait, so, so do you do you agree with that? Do you think that it's possible for students to make mistakes in, in what they choose to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, they, they might have, I mean, maybe it's not fashionable. So, but, if, but if you follow your interests, at what point, if you actually take that seriously, even if you do something that, uh, you know, like let's say you do something like psychology and cognitive science, but omit computer programming, that is as close to an error that I could think of um, if, if you want to do research because programming is the most useful thing you can do. Um, but uh, maybe that is actually in line with the student's proclivities and that's not something that they would enjoy or be good at. And so they can augment that by finding collaborators in the future. So may, uh, is there actually a sense in which they can truly be wrong if, they, if they're really following what, they, what they're enjoying doing and interested in what they're good at? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think so. I mean, you're like raising a really interesting question, but I think it comes down to what the student's goals are. So they might say, when I finish here, I want to do X, and it turns out to do X, they need to know how to program or something. There's just no way around it. So that would be a mistake. But otherwise, yeah, I agree. If, um, if people have, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, I think, an individual case, but that's why I think it would, that's why we don't have like, these kind of academic setups, because I think it pretty much require like individual advising attention to each student's uh, path. I mean, also, I mean, I'm not a big fan of making people do things, but like it, it would be good to at least give people advice, you know, when they're potentially making an error. But um, I mean, obviously, I would prefer things to be more open and for people to follow uh, their interests. So um, in terms of uh, psychology specifically, what do you think the curriculum should reflect? What should uh, a psychology student, perhaps in the general case, and then also in the, the sort of research track case, what do you think they need to know by the end of undergraduate that they're currently being let down on? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like in my own thinking and research, like computational modeling is really important in formal methods, and that won't be important to everybody's interests and pursuits. But, um, you know, I really think like training in general should focus more on, uh, I mean, it sounds uninteresting in some ways, more on, on methods and know-how and less on content because um, a lot of theories that we have in uh, psychology, like, you know, they're not all gonna be around uh, very long. It just seems like once you cover some basics and you build up some intuitions about how things work. I'm not sure like, um, you know, we students need to know every theory of everything. And it, it, this is something they could learn 
learn later, you know, but I think you need to know, have, you know, basic skills to be able to learn more themselves and to be able to get things done. So, I mean, I guess if I were running a course, you know, so yeah, everybody would have to program, have to do stats, but that's already in most psych programs. But, you know, maybe even things people wouldn't think about, like, you know, dealing with larger data sets, like more data science sort of skills or or even things that are theoretical, like maybe like covering information theory, or if you're doing a course in, you know, animal learning or learning, you have to at least understand like Riscola Wagner and like program it up and like build up intuitions about it. Because I think if you understand like some basic concepts and models like that, it'll give you like an insight into the wider literature and it won't just sort of devolve into a bunch of trivia that you have to memorize. I mean, that's actually what put me off as an undergraduate from neuroscience is it was just like, here's, it was almost like, you know, going to medical or school or something like here's a textbook and here's like 50 million parts of the eyeball that you have to memorize for your exam. And I mean, I guess I just don't think that's really, you know, a valuable skill for being a researcher or or be just having an interesting job in like this modern economy. So I guess I would emphasize more like skills and, you know, being able to, I don't know, basically being able to do things, be able to actually do research yourself and just getting enough of the content so that you know that you like it, that it interests you. And um, I don't know. Yeah. So. Right. I think one major problem and this might be part of a symptom, I think, Sort of one one big thing for me is that you have in psychology a discipline uh, like a curriculum whose main deliverable uh, and main mode of testing are multiple choice tests, right? Um, and that is traditionally how psychology undergraduates are evaluated. And I think if you are going to select the one most useless thing to evaluate a you know sort of curriculum of college education based off of that. Um, as great as they are for standardized testing, that um, that uh, these multiple choice tests would be on the top of that list, and uh, so not having to do any sort of critical thinking in terms of writing, not ha- having to do anything in terms of building shit like computational models, computer programs, uh, or you know if you're more interested in, in wet lab stuff, getting your hands dirty with that. Um, it seems to me that the uh, the the mode of evaluation and what we expect. A, a young psychologist to express her knowledge in terms of, which is choosing between uh, A, B, C, and D in some inane, you know, multiple choice test. Uh, I think that that's a huge issue uh, that I've seen, at least in every you know, sort of psychology curriculum that I've come across. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I mean, funny enough, um, in the British system, or at least at UCL, like most of the evaluation a lot of evaluation tends to be essay-based, but... And also one-on-one more than than large uh, lectures. Yeah, I think that's particularly true, you know, like places where you are now, like Oxford. But um, yeah, but it just ends up becoming like the same kind of exercise even because you just... I mean, I think people probably learn how to become better writers, but I mean, I've taught these um, seminars to students where we just work on their writing, but it's almost like you just kind of learn these strategies to package up like a viewpoint on a literature. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, you don't learn how to write, you learn how to bullshit, which is a, yeah. a useful life skill. It's totally useful in society, but I mean, we you have to be honest. There's a difference between learning how yep. to write an essay that gets an A, i.e. bullshit, um, or being able to actually convey your point of view to people who have their own point of view and, and meaningfully make a dent in what they think. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty performative. Like, I mean, it's better than multiple choice, and at least you learn how to write, but um, which is valuable. But um, yeah, no, I agree. It's because it's again, it's sort of like the nature of the questions isn't really that. It's not that deep. It's more like just taking the content and the key points from three key theories and and making each one of them a paragraph. And it's just not really. Um, yeah, it doesn't really seem that that deep i mean again I know this could upset people but that's just my take reading these things but yeah so there's something you said uh towards the sort of beginning of this conversation which is that you don't feel like you've ever fully reached the exploitation phase of your interests and um your your research um implying that you feel like your boundaries are always 
getting larger and you're incorporating more and different kinds of information. And I really love that sentiment. And I think that's something we should all strive to have more of. And I'm curious, in, in what ways do you think that that has most uh, sort of played out for you? And in what ways do you think, see that as sort of a defining feature of your um, intellectual experience? Yeah, uh, I mean, first, I mean, thanks for the kind words. I'm not sure it's like uh, a recommendation for others because um, it frankly makes like life harder when you're moving into new literatures, not just for like the reasons that might come to mind of, um, oh, you have to master a lot more or, or do a lot more before you can make a contribution. But there's also sort of these sociological, you know, aspects of like having a career where people have to know you for something or or how reviewers, you know, treat you. But yeah, I mean, for me, like, I just get interested in different things. I could see like how the things I'm interested in relate to one another. So it doesn't feel like that, um, you know, detached to me, but also like times change. Like, I just think we're in like, so when do you have to classically exploit, like when you're in a non-stationary environment and like, it just feels like the field of the world changes so like you have to change with it i mean fortunately i i want to but it's just like even if i didn't it would be the right thing to do i think in a lot of cases i mean if you look i remember when i was going to graduate school like most people like would do like a two by two behavioral study you know and that was fine and, and it just seems like the the bar is always raising for like the bits of things you have to tie together or like what's what's possible what you can do there weren't like you know these large data sets available to look at human behavior, for example. Um, you know, I'm very interested in like learning and decision making. There weren't like models that you could like apply to like, you know, like raw stimuli, like photographs then. Like, um, so, I mean, there's just like new opportunities and like, I mean, I think there's also like theoretical developments to change. It's just not all like technological. So like, I don't know. I mean, some I, I, I just bet it's going to be rare that somebody could like, be relevant for like 40 years kind of doing the same thing. But I mean, for me, it's just like how I am intellectually, like I just couldn't be that way. But I, I am actually trying to get a little bit more focused in recent years. And it's not just because of me, it's because um, when you run a lab, you have to think of the people in your lab. And I realized in my early years at UCL, like I had a bunch of students that were interested in um, learning and decision making, but not so much and the brain basis of it. And I had other students that are coming more from like a cognitive neuroscience background. And to me, I could see how all their projects like related, but I noticed that people really weren't like that interested in what other people were doing or talking in all cases. And um, I don't think that's like really, um, you know, healthy for a lab environment. So now I, I feel like labs like a little bit more focused on like kind of modeling like at scale and like there's more like at least that is like links everybody together and um yeah i think it just makes for like a happier experience for the the masters phd students and the postdoctoral researchers um so i want to dig a little bit into sort of the process of learning new literature so i guess in my own life uh, so I started my PhD this year. It's a three-year program. I don't have any specific classes that I have to take. So I have, I have a, a background, did um, you know, sort of a lab manager role in a computational lab. And so I, I, I feel pretty comfortable with research overall. And I feel like I have delved into uh, a number of different literatures, but I'm, I'm feeling right now the weight of, okay, I have a relatively short amount of time to become a relatively high-level expert in a specific, um, you know, literature, and it's up to me to gain that because I'm not necessarily. It's not like I'm going to have two years of classes that by the end of it, yeah, well, you know, you'll be pretty close, and you can supplement, you know, sort of relevant papers to your research on top of that. So yeah, I guess I'm wondering. Um, so maybe to take a concrete example, what was the last? literature that you feel like you've dived into that was relatively novel for you and how do you go about tackling something that's super big like um developing a, a new sort of uh, expertise in a, in a relatively new field yeah i mean it's a lot easier when you have uh good collaborators or 
um, even within your own lab. So I mean, like two recent examples is like since for so I, I do. I do like a lot of work in um, how people learn from examples and that the last decade or so related it to this like hippocampal um, learning mechanism and we've done some like model-based uh, brain imaging analyses of it. But I always thought like even before getting into that, that these same sort of computations were involved in how people understand space and navigate, but that's like a whole huge literature in like sort of, you know, place and grid cells. But um so I had these ideas, but to really do it, like, yeah, it's hard. So just recently started, like, you know, reading a lot more in that literature, but it was really, like, because I found the right person to do it with, with Rob Mock, who was a postdoc in lab, and we, he, you know, he really helped and helped synthesize, like, that literature. Um, and then together, like, we just, you know, recently published something, and now he's doing, like, a fellowship at Cambridge, sort of continuing those ideas. I mean, in other cases, the last few years, um, not just because of the hype, but because I think it's really useful for what we do. We got very into um, deep learning in a big way because it's always been like a dream of mine to, for someone who's interested in learning and concepts to like not write down what the features are by hand, like sort of experiment or crafted, like, oh, people are representing things this way, but to actually learn representations from actual data, actually like process raw images. So that's just been like really ex exciting to kind of do that modeling at scale. So like, basically we've, we've really jumped into that and that's, that's hard both from like, like a reading perspective to like kind of keep up on this vast, like machine learning literature, that's just like completely disorganized and moving at breakneck speed. But, you know, there's also like just technological challenges of getting good at GPU computing and like, even just like building those hardware resources. But I guess like you, I guess when you do this, you have to decide it's worthwhile. Like you can't do this for everything. And um, I mean, this is what I'm learning over time is that you have to take risks and like, but you have to kind of like pick what you're going to do and what you think is going to be like valuable for, you know, the least near future. Um, whereas I think in the past, I had a tendency to like thrash around a bit and like try out too many things and um, never actually like recoup that investment. So, you know, I'll explore with no exploit or something. So um, tell me the specifics about the way you organize reading, right? So I guess I'm thinking for myself, I have this back and forth on like, okay, so one thing I could do is be like, I'm going to tackle literature X, right? Um, and then I'm going to create a big ass folder on my computer with like uh, 150, 200 key papers in that field and over the course of a term like 10 weeks or whatever it is i'm going to read you know y number of papers per day and then by the end of that i'll essentially have this self-structured course right so that's when i go about or you just open a shit ton of tabs on your on your chrome and <laughs> you just sort of try and wade through that and never fully do it and you know what so so what exactly does it look like for you to read uh, as much as you need to read to, to to get this, how how exactly do you do it? Yeah, no, it's it's a really good question. I mean, one thing too that like makes it before you could even really read in an area, I think you have to have like the necessary like basics to make sense of it. So like, I mean, fortunately, like for me, for example, like uh, like you don't need that much mathematics to understand like these sort of neural networks. But like, I mean, I've already done the multivariate calculus, linear algebra, like all that kind of stuff. And I had like programmed like neural networks going back to like, you know, just being an 18 year old. So like, so like having those sort of, uh, you need to, basically I'm just saying that you need to have like a foundation. Um, and that could be hard to acquire, like when you're in graduate school and you already have all this pressure on you to get things done and perform. But I think otherwise it just kind of turns into how we were talking about the psychology major that in the worst case it could turn into like you're just collecting a bunch of trivia so i think you have to like kind of almost build up some kind of framework to you know even make sense of these literatures and that could be hard like it could be that you actually have to like learn some basic topic or you need to talk with some people that are experts in it to like provide some kind of like scaffolding for you because i mean otherwise you could just kind of get lost and you don't know what you need to pull out of these papers. And I mean, just as an example, I remember reading some psych review paper in graduate school about like metaphor or something. And 
reading it like every word like it was some kind of like holy text that it took like like a week to actually read the paper and now that kind of paper would probably take 10 minutes to read because you have like you know kind of like a schema in place just to make sense of it and you know it's just just kind of like breeze through so i mean i guess so that i mean there's maybe some positive story there too so if you know you're a student and you're struggling to get through all this stuff it, it will get easier and it and you will like see gains, but maybe um, try to, you know, talk with somebody or make sure you, you have like the skills going in to help structure it a bit. So it just doesn't, you know, end up overwhelming you with like um, a, what seems like a bunch of random information. Yeah. Um, so maybe another way to think about this is reading pragmatically, right? So if you have sort of um, a project that you want to do, a goal that you want to accomplish, something like that, you can structure the reading around, well, what do I need to know in order to meaningfully, uh, you know, sort of pull this off? And you, of course, if it's research, you're not going to know exactly perhaps what the interesting question that you can address is during the opening phases, but sort of conceptualizing the information that you're acquiring in those terms, in terms of what it's able to allow you to do, and the kind of questions that uh, you can ask in terms of their nuance, and then uh, what you need to know to be able to execute the experiment or the model or whatever it is around that. Yeah, that's, I think, really good advice and definitely true. Like, this is one example. I have a PhD, a student in lab now that's um, interested in top-down attention and um, deep learning models. And uh, it's like a vast literature, but like kind of what I suggest to him as he reads is like, think about um, like more goal goal oriented, like you said, think about like how these other approaches relate to your own. Like, what is what's unique about what you do? Are there any like good lessons from the other people's research that we could incorporate? How would you explain to somebody like you know how what you do offers something on top of this? So that like very much like structures how to go through these things, and I think then a lot of like the details that might not be necessary could kind of melt away and make the task easier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to go back and talk about your experience as a PhD student a little bit. So you, you went to Northwestern. Who did you study with there? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting story because, um, yeah, so my interests when I was applying to graduate school were in higher level cognition and i think it still is there but there were just so many people that were like uh renowned figures in that area and so i just thought like it wasn't really about going to work with any particular person i mean i think that was actually kind of naive of me because in reality you really do work with one person you need someone to look out for you um i mean that might not be the ideal but i think that's the reality in a lot of programs but anyway, I went to this place and I, I started working with uh, someone who wasn't really famous, um, who um, was a re really, really nice, um, really nice guy, um, Ed Wisnetsky. And um, but it was kind of like, you know, it's kind of a difficult experience in graduate school in a lot of ways. For one, for one, um, uh, my advisor didn't get tenure. Uh, and it really put a stress on his life. And I mean, he's already, unfortunately, I mean, it's really tragic. He actually uh, died like years, some years later of like a rare brain disease. But, um, but it was sort of like, I was, yeah. So I basically didn't have an advisor and uh, like, I was only there four years, which is short for the, the, the US. And um, the last bit, like, fortunately, like uh, Doug Medine, who works then and, now in like cross-cultural psychology, which like, you know, is interesting, but doesn't, didn't really interest me at all for my research, um, stood in as like an advisor and um, would recommend like readings for me. Cause this is like back before Google Scholar and stuff. Um, and he had sort of this like ridiculous memory where we, we, we didn't talk that much. I mean, Doug doesn't talk a lot in general. If, if you know him, he's like a man of few words, but um, he would just sit and be quiet, you know, and maybe like when we'd have a rare meeting and go, hmm, and he would walk over to this huge shelf of journals that were all dusty and just pull one off the shelf and open up the page and just like hand me something. I always thought he was like trolling me, but then I would read the article and it was usually 
relevant. But yeah, I was largely on my own. And I think what really got me through was um, making friends, especially with PhD students and other labs. Um, I mean, it was a lot of like support, but also exchange of internet of intellectual ideas. And like, I also like, I mean, we're very different in the kind of things we do, but I've made, I had like a collaboration and friendship with Jeff Rauder. That was a postdoc in um, Roger Radcliffe's lab who used to be at Northwestern. Um, and yeah, it was just like having somebody to like bounce ideas uh, around with. And he was like very smart and cantankerous. So, you know, it was, a, I think everybody, you know, so in some ways, like I probably like learned more from talking with him and like some some other like graduate students that were like in their own sort of dissident ways um than anything and then just sort of the kindness of like Doug Medine to like stand in and like help me get graduated so it was pretty pretty strange and so it was pretty undirected and independent and then I didn't do a postdoc either so it's very like not not normal and there were like a lot of problems along the way like because a very like strong-willed and can't i'm not like uh i definitely don't see conflict and i could be team-oriented but i also just can't really like listen very well so like um it led to some some problems like at some points it wasn't even clear i was gonna graduate even though i had like job offers from columbia and texas it was just sort of um yeah it was it was it was interesting like i don't a lot of it it was also kind of an odd program. I don't know if it's changed at Northwestern. There's some really lovely people there, but overall at the time, it wasn't, I don't think it was super good for many students. So it, it sounds like you were a very, so all, all PhDs to some extent are an unstructured endeavor. And that is one of the different difficult meta skills that it takes to, to do a PhD. In addition to having to learn about content and research and how to do all that. You have to learn how to structure your time in the absence of external constraints. So how um, did you deal with that? Was it hard? Was it something that came naturally to you? Did you have to come up with some sort of strategies for imposing structure on your time? How, how did it play out for you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, good question. And again, like, I, I don't think there's any advice here for people because each person is so different and how they relate to their to their work um, and how they how they balance things in their lives, but I guess for me, I'm kind of uh, obsessive about like these intellectual ideas. So um, it was really almost like making sure the opposite, like making sure I would not work too much and would hang out at night with friends or something and do normal things for someone in their like early to mid twenties. Um, but um, yeah, so I was, one thing that I think that helped is um, I wasn't really into the identity of a student from the get-go. I kind of saw myself more as like a, a junior scientist and I saw my job to, as getting like outputs, like not because I was like career oriented, but I just thought like that's, if your job's like a scientist, you have to like do science. Um, so I think that kind of orientation um, helped me. And um, also, like I said, I was talking with other other folks. So then it was really just like, um, yeah, so I think it was okay. I actually didn't really structure things. I mean, we just, this most structure was actually around social things, like going into work, having then having lunch with people, joking around, and then, you know, working, too late, not because anyone was making me, just because I wanted to, and then going out and, you know, being immature at night and then starting again the next day. Like, you know, it's, again, everyone, other people, of course, had uh, students have, some students have families already and have very different lives. But um, I mean, that was my life, but that was a very particular place and time and just for me. So, I mean, there's no real advice there for others yeah that's uh that's sort of funny you know you sort of remind me of um the professor that i worked for in my lab manager position which was sam gershman at harvard uh oh yeah i know sam yeah yeah i know you guys published something recently together but he sort of has that same quality of being interested in so many things and, and being able to 
uh, acquire uh, information and execute projects about, uh, you know, through, through those many domains in a very natural way uh, without any sort of uh, calculation that the rest of us need to get shit done. Just sort of <laughs> comes naturally out of interest and obsession. And the hard part is turning it off as opposed to, you know, getting it up to full speed. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, Sam seems like really, I mean, he is really amazing at getting things uh, getting things done and, and being thoughtful about it. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I guess if one isn't that way, that's like, there's many different paths to like, you know, getting to the goal. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's really about, you know, like emulating people like Sam, but I mean, maybe it's more about like, if you know what you're like and what you respond to, um, you know, that's how you should structure your life. So I actually really don't like having uh, too many meetings or commitments because, I mean, I just love like waking up and thinking about, you know, whatever comes to me and just start reading and working. And if there's something that really needs done, then like I'll just block off some days and do it. Like, you know, if there's like a, a paper deadline or something, but yeah, I really, I actually really like the time being unstructured, but I, if you read like whatever the books of like how people get things done or, you know, effective habits, like it's not going to say, say that, but I mean, I think we're kind of in a different kind of profession where you're supposed to, you know, kind of put all the pieces together and actually take some time to, to think about what you're doing. So, you know, it's not like we're making widgets. So maybe, you know, different things could work, work differently in this domain than others. Well, yeah, no, so I think um, one thing that's worth flagging here is that for people like you and Sam, I do think that there is just such a natural route to uh, being intellectually productive um, that sometimes the whole concept of needing to optimize your schedule, your productivity, or or all these things that that people talk about sometimes doesn't make sense from that perspective. But I think there's actually a useful model here, uh, which is slightly different maybe than the one you have in mind, right? So sort of what you're saying is uh, at least alluding to and sort of preface to, to, to some of the answers you're giving here is like, okay, look, here's how I do things, but I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily impose that on any anyone else, right? And I think um, the the kind of assumption there is that what people are going to do is, is try and import wholesale something that someone else does. And because they are fundamentally a different person, as we all are, uh, it's going to be off of them. So therefore, there's no sort of real reason to do it like that. I'm not, and I think that's a sort of uh, modest caricature of your position on it. Um, not it, probably, you know, taking few too many liberties, but that's kind of the idea. And then, um, but I think the, the, the most useful way to do it is that there are parts of everyone's methods for productivity, um, which... Uh, People, people don't have to take the entire thing as it is. They can essentially piecemeal pick and choose, right? And say, um, here is this aspect of how I get my, of how Brad gets his reading done. Here's this aspect of how Cody structures his calendars, whatever it is, whoever the people you're looking at. And you can essentially like you would a pair of shoes, go on and try, try on those different uh, ways of doing things and find an amalgam which might be, you know, sort of from other people, but nonetheless an amalgam of uh, things that work for you. And I think that's um, the sort of intersection of acknowledging people's idiosyncrasies and the different ways people have of doing things, but also being able to learn from others and be able to copy things that uh, other people have come up with that are useful because that's the end of the day where human intelligence comes from, right? The, 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 the amount of work that we do making progress on new ideas is very small in comparison to how much we learn from just copying the best ideas that the people uh, were around and the ideas were exposed to. Uh, that's, I, I do think you still need a general mechanism for copying the good strategies that other people are doing while simultaneously, like you're saying, acknowledging the fact that everyone is quite different. No, I, I definitely think that's right. I mean, I, I listened to your podcasts with uh linda smith and i think she said a strategy that a lot of people do that you know she blocks off in her case it was the morning the best hours of her day to like get some writing done and like i i don't do exactly that but 
I do know, like one thing I do that's related is like, um, if there's a really difficult intellectual task, you can't just like work on it 20 minutes at a time, or maybe even a half day. Like sometimes you just have to like rope off the time and just like preserve that time for yourself and not let the time get fractured to actually like think deeply about it or write some, you know, like even just the intro of a paper is like usually the hardest part for me to write and just focus on it. But yes, you're right. I think um, if you just kind of listen to what other people say, you could maybe like take the higher level point of like what works for them or what they do and adapt it for yourself and, and mix and match a bit. Yeah. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I, I get a lot from the people that I talk to on this, um, the show, especially the later stage professors is that they don't, they spend a lot of their time um, managing people and projects as opposed to doing the intellectual hands-on research and, and the sort of, nitty gritty work um and it sounds like you do more uh nitty gritty work um thinking up uh the new ideas sort of maybe what you think of as first author work as opposed to senior author work um in a lot of ways than uh, other people in your position so what do you do is a is that true and then b how how have you sort of structured your existence as a professor to allow yourself to do that yeah i mean it's funny i used to really kind of when I was a younger professor, like kind of looked down on people that weren't as much hands-on and, oh, you're not really doing science or this or that. But I think there is something to be said for kind of moving up like the chain and like scaling to work with people. But I mean, if, but yeah, I mean, I, I am kind of like a little bit more ideal oriented, like I'm more likely to like, but I don't really like program as much anymore. So I'm not hands-on in that way. I'm more likely to like, derive something or or work through an idea or like make three suggestions um to a, a postdoc or a phd student but then it takes someone really excellent you know to make that a reality i mean it's not like people are just like doing things in my lab like they have to they they bring a lot to the table or i mean not just their labor but their their ideas and insights um but yeah that actually i kind of yeah, I kind of see like the role more like kind of like, like definitely not a, a, a just a manager, more like a, a ringleader of ideas and sounding boards and trying to push things in this direction or the other direction. Um, I mean, I, I'll sit, we'll sit down and we'll go through results and, you know, say, try it this way, try it that way. But it's not like micromanaging to the point of like, let's look at your code or this, which I know a lot of people do. but. I'm not really sure that's actually the best thing for the students or postdocs either. Like, I think people need like that autonomy to like, just, you know, work through those kind of issues, but it's also like, it's not going to scale to even beyond like three people to like collaborate closely with. If you don't have like trust in people to like execute things. So yeah, I think I'm kind of more like reading, connecting the dots, like idea derivations oriented. So um, maybe so this kind of touches on something that we talked about earlier. You've been a professor at UT Austin and then uh, now at UCL for a while. So what um, is your, sort of your take uh -huh. on uh, being a professor in England versus in America? And then are there you know, sort of pros and cons to, to either of them? What's your sort of take on all that? Yeah, I mean... The cultures just overall are very different, even beyond the academic culture. I mean, it's almost just because people are speaking the same language, roughly, that you, uh, you know, think everything's the same, but it's not. Um, I mean, so one thing that is just very particular to U UCL, um, not even like these whole differences of systems, is that it's at sort of this intellectual nexus point. In the UK, I mean, there's this like, you know, triangle with Oxford and Cambridge, and there's a lot of other really great universities that are like within two hours. And I see even see more like North American friends passing through London than I did passing through Austin, Texas. And the same could be said of colleagues. There's just an abundance of like riches in terms of just talks and seminars going on. And so it feels like just like a really like, you know, exciting place intellectually with a lot of crosstalk and like University of Texas is a excellent university, but um, you just, it just because of the 
geography, you, you don't don't really get like the same level of like interaction, like feeling like, I don't know. It just, yeah. So it's just very stimulating, you know, being here. So that's one difference. It's not even about the systems, um, but about the systems themselves. I mean, there's, I, I actually, it's hard to understand like why the UK systems as good as it is in some ways, given how it's like so under-resourced um, relative to the US system. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe I've been here so long, it's even hard to answer that question. I mean, there's definitely like, uh, you know, different kinds of workloads. There's sort of like strangely more bureaucracy here with that have like desperately tried to avoid. Of, there's like, nothing the British love so much as bureaucracy. Yeah, you wouldn't think. So I think it's almost goes back to like when people didn't do as much research or work as much or like, yes, let's second mark, second grade this three times and have five committee meetings on this. And and but people don't actually have as many like lecture hours here uh, in general. I mean, obviously everyone's personal situation is different, but um, it, yeah, the, like the job here could be a lot. I think overall, it's like people spend as much time on research versus other aspects of the job. But it seems like there's a lot of things that could be cut, and in general, I think there's a little less like staff support. Uh, you know, people don't have lab managers. For yeah, example. yeah, that's true. I think it's because a lot of, most of the grants are smaller, but even like sort of departmental staff seem like really good here, but like maybe stretched a bit thin. Seems like there's less yeah. advisor advisor support for students, so it ends up getting pushed more onto the professors and stuff. But um, I don't know. Like overall, it seems almost like balanced out in some way. But I think. Um, I don't know. When I came here, it seemed like a, there's sort of a nice ethos that people were really into ideas. I mean, people are into ideas in the U.S. too, but um, it felt like people were like, you know, even if you didn't have like 10 nature papers, people would still listen to you if you had something interesting to say, which um, at first, you know, because UCL is like um, a highly rated place. So I thought, you know, it's going to be like, everything's going to be like status oriented. I mean, everything's status oriented, but it's also seemed to be like, kind of uh, a fairly pure place intellectually, you know, so that that was like a, a pleasant surprise. And um, yeah. Well, this has been fun to chat and uh, thanks for taking the time to do this. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this with people. Oh yeah, it was really great talking with you and like your podcast is really positive and it's, it's great you're doing this and yeah, thanks for inviting me. Okay, that was my interview with Brad Love. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to connect with Brad, you can follow him on Twitter at ProfData. And if you want to connect with me, you can subscribe to the show here. You can follow me on Twitter at CodyCommerce. Or you can sign up for my newsletter, Dear Luke, uh, at my website, CodyCommerce.com newsletter. Thanks for listening this week. I hope you found it engaging. And I will see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.